This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Greetings from Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am here representing Team PSA to give you the best of PSA from ACR 2022 for today, which is Saturday, November 12th of 2022. So I'm going to give you two abstracts today. The first is abstract number 387 entitled Sleep Quality in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis and Its Relationship with Activity and Comorbidity. So this was by Dr. Martinez et al. It's a cross-sectional study, nearly 250 psoriatic arthritis patients, and the group looked at multiple, multiple measures. But one that they included, which is really interesting, is a PSQI questionnaire regarding sleep. So ultimately, their analysis showed that four out of six psoriatic arthritis patients self-report poor sleep quality. This was mainly found in our female patients but it was also associated with increased emphysitis, increased disease activity reporting, in addition to fatigue, anxiety, and depression. Now, I don't think that's necessarily what's so interesting about this subject. Here's what's really interesting about this actual study. Only half of these patients, again, self-reported poor sleep quality, were on medications in an effort to improve their sleep. They we didn't have any discussion regarding non-pharmacological interventions for these patients, but we all know that sleep is very important. It's also quite complex. So while this study doesn't share the whole um, kind of paradigm of sleep regarding our patients, what it it does point out for me and for our team is that we need more data regarding sleep independent of disease, but we also need to be discussing and integrating sleep options for our patients in clinical practice and working that into our clinical repertoire, whether that be pharmacological and, um, or non-pharmacological interventions for patients. So just kind of keep that as a clinical pearl in the back of your mind. Our next abstract is number 377 entitled Differences in Early Onset versus Late Onset Psoriatic Arthritis. Now, this is data from the Respondia and the Registrar studies. This was by Dr. Puche LaRubia et al. And the objective of this particular study was to understand disease differences as they may be related to early, age less than 40, versus late onset, age greater than 60, for our psoriatic arthritis patients. Now, as I mentioned before, this is actually an observational study looking at Respondia and the Res. Registrar registries out of Spain, again, nearly 250 patients. What they ultimately found was that the late onset patients, so again, those over age 60, predominantly were male. They had higher structural damage at baseline from their disease. They had elevated VASPs, and of course, they had more upper extremity arthritis. That's interesting, but what they also found was that those patients were less likely to have sacroiliitis and enthesitis. So kind of showing a different spectrum of disease than we had maybe thought previously. So also interestingly, early versus late disease onset had no effect on the overall quality of a patient's life, the disease activity itself, or changes with treatment options. So this is the first day of ACR 2022, and this is our day one report for Team PSA. 
We are absolutely looking forward to tomorrow. We're gonna to have more PSA specific abstracts. And as always, for more ACR 2022 coverage, log into roomnow.com. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm reporting here from Philadelphia at ACR 2022. It's really lovely to be here in person, first ACR back, uh, see lots of old friends. It's been great. The scientific program started today though, and there's been lots great um, on the poster floor, the virtual poster floor, um, particularly in the rheumatoid arthritis space. I want to tell you a little bit about some work that I've seen evolving over a couple of years, looking at recurrent neural networks and MRIs. And so what does this mean? Well, we can essentially, in broad terms, use artificial intelligence to try and piece together whether a patient has rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis just from the MRIs of their hands. And so this is what's been done by some German investigators. 502 patients, about one third of them seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, one third seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, and then another third psoriatic arthritis. I guess we're always concerned that seronegative rheumatoid arthritis might blend into psoriatic arthritis. But they compared the three groups and tried using unsupervised techniques to try and determine whether the algorithm could, to, could differentiate those three groups. And actually, really, quite pleasingly, the algorithm was able to differentiate seropositive rheumatoid arthritis away from psoriatic arthritis, just based on hands, just as well as it could from seronegative arthritis, seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And so a few things. Firstly, it could actually tell where on the scan made the difference. And so importantly, we saw enthesitis and soft tissue inflammation that would correlate with tenosynovitis as key differentiators between the rheumatoid arthritis groups and psoriatic arthritis. But you can imagine the implications. Now, I don't want to get too excited, and the performance is definitely not perfect. I don't think this can stand up by itself, but you can imagine this as a triaging tool in situations with our rheumatology workforce shortage the way it is, where we can't get patients to see a rheumatologist as quickly as we'd like. MRI scans may be more accessible in some parts of the world, and then to be able to use an algorithm like this to be able to differentiate patients down different pathways might be enormously powerful. You can also imagine though, in the future as we go along, maybe this as part of an overall assessment may be part of better phenotyping patients in general. We put a lot of labels on patients depending on what we see. Psoriatic arthritis maybe just because they've got a bit of chronic plaque psoriasis, even though we don't, we're not necessarily sure whether that relates to their small joint arthritis. And maybe it's all part of a deeper phenotyping process that we're working towards. There's been a lot else on, at this meeting on better phenotyping. It's been really exciting from that point of view. And so I hope you join us at roomnow.com for plenty more about rheumatoid arthritis and everything else to do with this meeting. Hi, it's Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia for Room Now. A lot of good abstracts, including abstracts about psoriatic arthritis. One that I'm going to talk about right now, abstract 1598. Safety and efficacy of Ducravacitinib, an oral selective tyrosine kinase 2 or TIC2 inhibitor in patients with psoriatic arthritis. Phase two, the results from a phase 2 study at 52 weeks. Interesting abstract, I think because of some of the measures and also with some of the design issues. So in this study, two different doses of Ducravacitinib were compared with placebo and did much better in all the different domains of psoriatic arthritis. For the patients who had not reached minimal disease activity, they then were treated with ustekinumab 
as were the patients who received placebo. As I said, of course, in the original part that was reported, the blinded part, uh, people did better. 25% of the Ducravacitinib patients achieved minimal disease activity, or MDA, which is one of our goals in psoriatic arthritis. All the patients then were switched to treatment with ustekinumab, an approved inhibitor of IL-1223 that we use in psoriatic arthritis and our colleagues in dermatology use in psoriasis. The people who stayed on Ducravacitinib sustained their response through the rest of the year, through week 52. Good levels of response, a little bit of an increase, and a low level of the PASTAS, which was also included as an outcome in this study. Patients who were switched to the ustekinumab did show improvement, although the levels of improvement were not as high as those who had achieved MDA in the initial part of the study. So I think there are several aspects of this that are worth noting. It's great to have newer therapies for psoriatic arthritis. A lot of interest in TIC2 inhibition as questions come about whether it may be different and how it would be different from the other JAK inhibs. And I think unique aspects of a study design, we like a switching to an alternative mechanism. And of course, the use of another instrument, the PASDES. So a lot of good information here and things that I think will be useful to us in the clinic. So with that, thank you very much. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR 22 for Room Now. Hello, everyone. I'm Olga Petrina reporting virtually from the ACR 2022. And today I would like to share um, abstract 0377, which is a study from Spain. Um, it's an observational study from two different cohorts of patients with psoriatic arthritis where authors divided patients uh, into two separate groups, patients with early onset PSA, which is onset before age of 40, and those who were diagnosed after the age of 16 and labeled late onset PSA. Researchers looked into the differences in the clinical presentations and, uh, presentation and outcomes of patients who were diagnosed early versus uh, late onset disease. And they found that when it comes to clinical presentation, patients who have late onset disease are more likely to be male. They happen to have more structural damage uh, and worse functional scores by FASFI uh, at the time of diagnosis, even though there is low, less diagnostic delay um, when it comes to establishing diagnosis. Also, late onset patients are more likely to have um, inflammatory arthritis affecting upper extremities, and they were more likely to uh, suffer from comorbidities, uh, particularly higher rates of heart disease was observed in this group. When it comes to presentations such as sacroiliitis and enthesitis, those who are more likely in early onset disease, and they were, there seemed to be not to affect quality of life, uh, as much in the younger population. I found it interesting that while the patients with sacroiliitis and enthesitis were seen in younger population more often, there was no difference in disease activity and severity between the two groups. And it seems that differences in clinical presentation did not affect uh, treatment choice based on the age of onset. I would be curious to see more studies about treatment choices in patients with uh, disease diagnosed in 
earlier in younger age as opposed to older uh, groups, particularly because we do see there is more structural damage, more impact on quality of life and functional status in these older diagnosed patients. Uh, but I guess I'll have to scavenge for more abstracts in that regard. Uh, if you would like to find out more, please follow us on Room Now and enjoy the meeting. Hello everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow, reporting live from Philly for Run Now. I have seen quite a few exciting um, studies today and there's one that I really wanted to share with you. So it's basically um, num abstract number 402 by Ogdi et al. Um, and they basically looked into opioids prescription in patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis um, and how this, how this was impacting the medical costs and the need for uh, medical care in general. So um, first finding that I thought was quite interesting, so they looked at 800 plus patients in the forward um, database um, for rheumatic disease, which is in, um, uh, in the US. And um, the first thing that kind of shocked me was that one patient out of five was consuming opioids on a regular basis. Um, I think first of all, it's quite interesting because I think the way it relates to other countries um, is, can be a bit different. Um, but obviously patients that were on um, opioid drugs were more likely to have you know, more comorbidities, they were smoking more, they had higher disease activity. But also, and it, it makes sense, they had higher healthcare consumption, else uh, medical costs were higher, more uh, visits as well. And if you look specifically into the PSA um, a portion of the patients, 33% of uh, visits were occurring more often annually in the context of um, you know patients. And also, obviously, the costs were higher for both PSA and ankylosing spondylitis patients. So this whole makes sense, but for me the question really is, does that relate to a population of patients that have more severe disease? Because you know, more comorbidities, higher disease activity, and then obviously more pain, and because of that more opioids. Or are these patients basically prescribed opioid and therefore have more comorbidities and therefore more complications. So I think I would be quite interested to see these numbers in different countries. Um, and I think this is um, obviously something that warrants further research. Um, this was Aurélie Najm for RumNow. Uh, tune in on RumNow for more content and um, see you soon. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Sims here at the 2022 ACR National Meeting uh, covering for RumNow. Today we're going to be talking about patient-reported outcomes using the novel IL-17A inhibitor, Azacabib. This is a 16-week placebo-controlled phase 2 trial in patients with psoriatic arthritis. This is abstract 0199 with Dr. Frank Behrens at the University of Frankfurt. So we all know that IL-17 is a key driver of psoriatic arthritis disease processes that impacts patients' daily functioning. This is a prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled a trial using azacabib 40 milligrams or 80 milligrams subcutaneously every two weeks. Patients needed to have three or more swollen joints and three or more tender joints in order to be included in this study. They also needed to have an inadequate response to NSAIDs, TNF inhibitors, and conventional synthetic DMARDs. Patient reported outcomes were the main uh, outcome measure for this study, and they looked at things uh, for pain, global disease assessment, and itching. 135 patients were included at 28 sites. 
the meat age was about 48 years, disease duration seven years, and patients had a psoriatic arthritis impacted disease score of 5.9 and a hack di score of 1.3. At 12 weeks, all patient reported outcomes revealed significantly and clinically meaningful improvements for the 80 milligram subgroup. This was a significant uh, improvement in sleep, pain, and functionality for patients. So the takeaway point is that Azacabib showed a dose-dependent improvement in patient-reported outcomes and PSAID subdomains in patients with active psoriatic arthritis. You can follow me at Dr. Cassie Sims on Twitter for more and continue to tune in for ACR 2022 coverage at Room Now. Hi Philadelphia, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I have an honor today of introducing you, if you don't already know her, to my friend Dr. Alexis Ogdi. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You are prolific with everything that you do, but one of the abstracts that really spoke to me this year is Abstract 1600. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a study from the Core Evitas Registry among patients with psoriatic arthritis who were uh, had thin, had failed their first TNF inhibitor and then were switching to a new TNF or switching to a new mechanism of action. So we examined the outcomes over the next six months and then the next two years, and we found that patients who switched to an alternative medic MOA actually did it slightly better. It wasn't a lot different, but it was a little bit different than someone who switched to another TNF inhibitor. So I think this is really interesting because we talk about this all the time, right? And unfortunately, a lot of our decisions tend to be made based on what we can get access to for our yeah. patients. But when it comes down to it, how are you treating patients in clinic in an ideal world? Yeah, so in an ideal world, I usually will, if they did really well in that first TNF inhibitor and they were on it for a long period of time, then I'm gonna go to second TNF inhibitor usually. But if they didn't do so well or they kind of had a stuttering course, then I might switch to a different mechanism of action. So there's some nuance, you know, so you can't put into a study like a registry study. Well, absolutely. I mean, and I think there's a big difference between loss of efficacy and lack of efficacy, yeah. which is really kind of what you're highlighting. Exactly. So when it comes down to it, do you, how long do you tend to wait for these patients to have a response? Again, nuanced, I know. Right. In general, I tell patients I'd like them to try it for six months because if we're switching before six months, there are some people who will continue to respond out to that time. So, so I really appreciate the way that you treat patients because I think it's very common in what we do in general for patient treatment. But one other thing that you mentioned today is that there's another abstract, which is also quite interesting. It's abstract 402 regarding opiate use. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, one of the things we're also interested in is how do we get patients feeling better overall? And we know that a lot of patients are feeling well, and there's actually still a lot of patients utilizing opiates, which we know to be bad for many reasons. Um, so in the forward registry, which is a national dating bank for rheumatic diseases, we examined patients with psoriatic arthritis and AXPA, and we looked at the prevalence of opiate use and then how those patients were different and were they being treated differently. And so you might think maybe they're not getting enough of the DMARDs or, C or biologics, for example, but actually they were getting more. And so they tended to be people who were just not doing as well they had higher healthcare utilization, higher patient-reported disease activity. So these patients, you can tell, are just not doing well. So we need an alternative approaches to getting patients to that lower level of disease activity, the perceived disease activity and better quality of life. So I think perception's a really big deal for our patients. I mean, if they respond and if they feel they're responding, ultimately their own pros, right, patient-reported outcomes tend to be a little bit higher. That's data we're all familiar with, but are we actually capturing it? And I think that's a really clinically useful discussion. And 
it changes. It's nuanced, as you said. I mean, exactly. so, so is psoriatic arthritis and psoriatic <laughs> disease. So. Yeah, and it, it is tricky. And I think sometimes people are maybe quick to reach for the opiates because it's easy. I think this is the point where we need to slow down and say, all right, what, what else do we have in our toolbox? Because there's many other things that we're not maybe utilizing as much as we could. That that was beautifully stated. I, there's no other way to really have have it that discussion without having that discussion. And um, I really, you are my dear friend. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think you have such an amazing plethora, the way that your mind thinks epidemiologically, et cetera. You've gifted that to the ACR, amongst other <laughs> other publications but what I really think is interesting is the way that you have utilized your background to create this amazing career for yourself and you have also been involved with FIT right the fellows and so if you had one piece of advice for our fellows in training what do you think that would be? Persistence so stick with it find something you're passionate about and then don't get off that track just stay on the track. You, my dear, are one of the most passionate people I've ever met. <laughs> thank you so much. thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you for giving of your time, your energy, your effort. And as always, follow us on uh, roomnow.com, but also follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and Dr. Ogdi at... Alexis Ogdi. I can never remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn Alexis for sure. O. And maybe it's Alexis <laughs> O. Thank you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, don't worry. Find us on Twitter. We're here for you. And thank you again. Thank you so much. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting for Room Now from ACOR 2022. Today I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Professor Leahy Eder, uh, who needs no introduction. Um, as many of you know, she is a professor, rheumatologist and scientist at Women's College Hospital and the University of Toronto. So today, Professor Eder has very kindly agreed to discuss her abstract number 1007 entitled Metabolic Disorders and Abnormal Dietary Patterns and the Association with Psoriatic Arth Arthritis. So the DIPSA study, the Dietary Interventions in Psoriatic Arth Arthritis. So first off, thank you so much, Professor Eder, for agreeing to join us today. Um, my first question is, what inspired you uh, to undertake this research? Thank you, Trish. This is, a, a, I guess, a good question. And um, we know that psoriatic arthritis is strongly associated with obesity. Many of the patients that we see in the clinic are facing obesity and its related metabolic abnormalities. And so there is more and more epidemiologic data to suggest that obesity is actually a risk factor for development of psoriatic arthritis. And it's also associated with poor disease outcomes. And there are also some studies that suggest that some dietary habits or changes, especially in mice models, could be associated with development of psoriasis uh, itself. So we were wondering whether, well, we see patients that are seeing me, I'm sure the patients that you see in the clinic as well are asking about what they should eat or what they shouldn't eat in order to make their disease better. And so we decided to study that. And our hypothesis was that we, we believe that losing weight is important. There are some data, mostly in psoriasis patients, that losing weight could improve at least to a, a mild to moderate degree their psoriasis. There is not much in psoriatic arthritis, but that's um, some data to suggest that. But the problem with losing weight is that it's really hard to achieve and maintain. So 
we were also asking ourselves whether focusing on healthy diet habits would be another way of improving patient outcomes beyond just weight loss. And that's why we selected Mediterranean diet, which is a type of diet that's associated with many good outcomes. And yes, it might be associated with some weight loss, but more focusing on the olive oil and nuts and fruits and vegetables, these components rather than focusing on losing weight. So this is really the hypothesis behind the DIPSA study, which is a randomized control trial aimed at assessing whether a Mediterranean diet versus low caloric diet versus standard of care could be used as an adjunct therapy, not instead of therapy, but adjunct therapy in patients who continue to have ongoing symptoms related to PSA. Brilliant. Um, And I know this is incredibly complex, but I was just wondering if you could briefly give us your opinion on what you think is driving the link of obesity with psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, there are several hypotheses. And um, one, we we all know that obesity is a state of, it's a pro-inflammatory state. So the adipose tissue is uh, not just a source of energy, but it can function as an endocrine organ. There is production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's possible that in, you know, this pro-inflammatory milieu would affect the skin and the joints. That's one hypothesis. And there are some other hypotheses related to, you know, the biomechanical stress associated with obesity influencing the enthesis. And then there are some hypotheses around the microbiome, maybe things that we eat would affect the microbiome. Um, in, in the DIPSA study, we aim, we do collect stool samples and blood samples. So we will be able to test some of these hypotheses in the future. So watch this space. (laughs) Um, So back to your abstract, if you could briefly go through the methodology and maybe some of the pertinent results from um, abstract 1007. So this is really, it's an ongoing, DIPSA is an ongoing study and uh, we still, we are still recruiting, but we thought it might be a kind of helpful to start looking at the data from the first uh, 32 patients that were recruited. We aim to recruit a total of 90 patients. And so we were assessing first their um, sort of metabolic abnormalities and as expected because patients that are recruited for DIPSA are uh, those that have overweight and at least overweight. So many of the, over 70% of the patients were obese and as expected as well, they had a lot of metabolic abnormalities such as hypertension, dyslipidemia. This was not a surprise. The other component of the study was um, asking patients about their dietary habits. So when they enroll in the study, they f- complete a dietary recall for three weekdays. Um, and then there is a way to estimate how good they are, adhere with recommended diet. Um, this is based on the nutrition, American Nutrition Association, and it's called the Healthy Eating Index. So there are several categories for different food components and Based on this recall, we give them a score ranging from 0 to 10 or 0 to 5. And the higher the score, the better they are in terms of you know, adhering with these recommended diets. We found that um, 
there was the, the low adherence in terms of the different food components was with whole grains and sodium. So these were the components that people were received the lowest scores. Women were generally doing better than men, maybe more conscious about what they eat. Yeah. And then yeah. the, the last component was we assessed the correlation between the, this index of adherence index and some measures of, of disease activity in PSA. We did find some interesting associations there. We found that people that consume more fruits had less swollen joints. Uh, people that cons were consuming uh, less sugars had lower uh, fatigue and uh, lower PSAID, which is a measure of quality of life. And there was also some association with uh, unsaturated and saturated fatty acids and anxiety. So this is very preliminary. Obviously, it's a cross-sectional analysis, but it does show some interesting uh, associations that would uh, hopefully be confirmed in the randomized control trial itself. And um, we hope that we'll be able to determine whether diets could actually be used as an adjunct therapy in psoriatic arthritis in those patients that um, don't meet you know, the, the low disease activity state just as an add-on. Again, it's not replacing any of the very effective medications that we have, but just as an add-on that could potentially improve the psoriatic arthritis as well as their metabolic abnormalities. Which is brilliant. Um, I suppose, and following on from that on the next steps of the study, what do you ultimately hope the impact of your results will have on the lives of patients with psoriatic arthritis? Well, uh, I, I believe there are still lots of gaps, despite the fact that in psoriatic arthritis, there has been huge advances in therapy. We have lots of modes of actions and biologics and targeted synthetic therapies. Many patients still are still facing a high burden of disease. Uh, some of it may not be improved just by targeting the immune, um, immune cells or immune uh, pathways. Uh, there are some other aspects of, you know, related to comorbidities that we need to address. Uh, their cardiovascular health is a major part of their disease. So, and also diet is really something that is, people are asking about it. Many people are keen to try. And if it can make their disease better, that would be a great bonus. Absolutely. And even quality of life, you know, um, simple, easily modifiable things to change in their diet. Yeah. So um, thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited for the next stage of the study and hearing the results for that. Um, thank you so much again for joining us today. Um, and thank you to everyone who listened in. Um, I encourage you all to subscribe to Room Now and follow us all on Twitter to keep up to date with all things ACR 2022. Hi. It's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia for Room Now. A lot of interesting abstracts, a lot of therapeutic abstracts, also abstracts about the assessment of disease, including psoriatic arthritis. One that I particularly liked is about the Duet study, and this is abstract 2206. Title is Understanding Interrater Variability in Scoring of Athesial Lesions, Results from the Diagnostic Ultrasound Anthocytis Tool Duet Study. This is from Leahy Eaters, the lead in this from Toronto. 
And this is very important. Uh, ultrasound is becoming used much more commonly. Of course, it's very powerful at not only looking at the anatomic structure and changes in the anatomic structure, also looking at disease activity in terms of blood flow representing inflammation. Because all of us learn how to do ultrasound a little bit differently perhaps, and because we want to use this as actual data, it's very important to standardize. And that's what this is doing specifically in psoriatic arthritis. So they looked at the rating across raters of anthesophytes, vascularization, bursitis, erosions, hypoecogenicity, calcification, and thickening. Not surprisingly, they found some differences from uh, very good inter-rater reliability for some things and a little bit less for others. So I think the importance of this, this study is ongoing. Uh, we're actually a participant in this. I'm at UCSD and my colleague, Dr. Abbas Singh is doing this. Uh, it's very important. I think many of us, all our fellows are, are learning ultrasound. Many of us do ultrasound with the availability of smaller machines. It's gonna be something we incorporate more. So we'd love to treat this as actual data and make it an outcome measure for our patients, including those with PSA. And this study is a big step towards that. So important study. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Sims covering the ACR 22 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for Room Now. And today we're going to talk about the impact of upacitinib versus adalidumab in psoriatic arthritis using the RAPID-3. This is abstract 0192 from Dr. Laura Coates at the University of Oxford. And this study is a post hoc analysis from the double blind select psoriatic arthritis one trial. And what they did is included patients who had been intolerant or uh, had an inadequate response to more than one biologic, or sorry, non-biologic DMARD. They received upacitinib 15 or 30 milligrams per day or adalidumab 40 milligrams every two weeks or they were placed in a placebo group. The placebo group was then switched to upacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams at week 24. The RAPID-3 is calculated using pain scores, patients' global assessment of disease activity, and HACDI scores. And these were assessed through week 56. 1,200 patients were included in this study, and patients on upacitinib actually showed greater improvement from their baseline RAPID-3 versus adalidumab at all visits from weeks 15 to 56. By week 56, half of patients on either therapy were either in remission or low activity based off their RAPID-3, which is a wonderful response, but RAPID-3 scores were significantly better in patients on upacitinib 15 milligrams per day. So the takeaway point from this study is that upacitinib 15 milligrams per day led to greater improvements in the RAPID-3 over placebo over a 56-week period, and there were greater improvements over uh, adalidumab from week 16 to 56.